Hello everyone, welcome to Propane Fitness Podcast episode 24. Uh, Johnny isn't here today, uh, we're actually, the topic of today's podcast is flexibility and Johnny just felt too intimidated because he's not flexible, um, he's actually doing a, a client video call but um, anyway we are here today with Emmett Louis, who is an acrobatic and movement specialist. Um, recently I've changed my training focus much more towards gymnastics and acrobatics and trying to improve my flexibility and I came across Emmett through a couple of mutual friends as well as um, just having an absolute binge of his YouTube channel. All of the stuff that he gets across is really accessible. He's got a good grounding in um, the theory of, of strength and, and, and training and uh, the main thing that really attracted us to him is primarily his beard. So um, yeah, he's he's an empirically focused guy in and uh yeah so hi emmet hey how's it going thanks for having me it's uh, an honor as i said earlier just uh you know quite a big guest list to live up to so hopefully i can do you guys answer some questions and help your listeners hopefully yeah so um can you tell us a bit about yourself about your history so the short story was i'll give you a short story anyway so i've always been quite active in extreme sports bit of gymnastics and acrobatics in school but not at competition level it was just basically instead of PE we had one of the teachers was gymnastics coach so we do gymnastics the other one we do kicking footballs around shit like that so nothing major then as I progressed now I got interested in performing I was performing in nightclubs doing circus things like that then I decided to that was about age 18 then I went on done a degree in first I done circa media in Bristol and I went on to Circus Space in London, which is now National Centre of Circus Arts. And then from there, I was performing for a few years afterwards. Then I had an injury and basically shifted my focus to coaching because I couldn't keep up with the performance schedule. Then in terms of how I developed as a coach, it's I was always a bit behind my peers in terms of skill level. I you know, didn't wasn't an elite-level gymnast. I'm not from Eastern Europe, where it was whipped into shape from <laughs> quite a young age. So I... You know, I was always researching training, even back in the day, just trying to find out, you know, what can I find to make myself better, what is good, what doesn't work. So from that, I began to, you know, like, say, age 18, I was devouring T-Nation, you know. And like, you know, Same. people knock on T-Nation, but I think, like, it gave me so many starts. And, you know, I'm quite academically focused. I'll sort of go and I'll buy books or, you know, even back then. So then I'd find all these starting points from T-Nation, say, and then I'd lead on from there, see what worked, see what didn't work. And then sort of I'd slowly get more and more people coming to me asking me for questions. And then with the sort of growth of this movement thing, I was working as a normal personal trainer after my injury. But then I had more and more people were coming just to seek me out because they knew he's got this knowledge base that we're now interested in. So it's kind of interesting just how it's kind of exploded over the last few years. I never expected anything to get as big as it's getting. But, uh, that sounds yeah. That sounds very similar to us. I think T Nation was almost uh, the death of us in that we probably spent about um, two, three years getting what we like to call bogged down in uh, thinking that um, if the reason for our lack of progress was that our casein wasn't hydrolyzed enough and that the um, the, the multi-chain cyclical dextrose wasn't um, wasn't quite timed correctly with our workouts and stuff but um yeah it's certainly there there was some good uh, good content on, that, on there as well aside from the yeah, uh, supplement uh, yeah we need the supplements and you know I need this one 
or I discovered if you take enough hot rocks, it's like taking a rap of speed. You know? <laughs> yeah, you terrifying. Disadvantages of the youth, but uh, whatever happens, happens. But uh, no, I think there's a lot of good information on T Nation, and they do try to oversell you supplements and men's nipples. But, but. <laughs> I suppose they've got to make a living. But yeah, yeah there we go. Um, so yeah, who do you um, who do you primarily work with now? Primarily, it's really weird. So. When, say, I was just personal training, I was split my time. I'd train circus people, so just people from circus, either acrobatics, different disciplines looking just to enhance what would have been, what's, what would be now called movement. So I don't really coach any specific discipline, but I'll just be looking, trying to correct imbalances, fix the flexibility, get them to the next level what they're doing. So I'd be taking a more general approach to their body, whereas their specific coach would be working, you know, oh, we're going to make it good on rope. So I'm just going to go, what makes a good rope artist? What makes this? Let's find those qualities you're missing, put them in your body. Then, as this with the growth of CrossFit more than anything else was the first sort of kick of this, you know, I had a lot of CrossFitters coming like, oh, we want to learn how to do muscle-ups or bar muscle-ups. These gymnastic skills, L-sets, you know, because what they were doing in the CrossFit class just wasn't working for them. So that was kind of the first foray into the movement world, but now it's just been more and more people are just seeking me out. Right. And then, and that's, you know, I started putting the videos on YouTube more just to answer questions that I was getting a lot. So then it's just gone getting those questions and then it's just grown and grown and it's just like, you know, I've basically had to quit. I only take on few people in person now. So that size of my business, I got rid of all the normal personal training things a couple of years ago. I just deal with special cases, which is quite interesting. That's cool. I think, um, yeah, the, the quality is clearly showing through in, in the material you put out, and I'd put money on within within a couple of years. Your your uh, exposure, your subscriber base is gonna yeah, it's gonna be growing pretty rapidly. So, um, yeah, it's really good to see. Um, you mentioned that you had an injury that put you out for a while, and I I, I saw that uh, is it you fractured your Trapezium. My trapezium in my wrist. For those who don't know, it's one of the metacarpals just below the base of the thumb. Now I've done that. I landed on a half pipe wrong and just broke it. It's one of the rarest fractures you can do in a wrist. In a wrist, a risk, a risky <laughs> rare fracture. <laughs> but, uh, it basically the trapezium broke in half, and half of it died off because I had no blood supply. So for what is an incredibly tiny bone in your body. It was causing me a lot of pain. I couldn't weight bear. I couldn't grip strong. So for about two years, I was unable to train bar maybe once a week just to sort of keep a small base level of strength. The rest of the time, you know, push-ups were out, even push-ups with parallel bars. Oh, man. Slowly, like, I still, I couldn't even flex my wrist or extend my wrist. You know, stuck to about this level. Seeing specialists, specialists with no help. So I ended up just doing a lot of research, applying my own stuff, and... I've essentially rebuilt the joint now to the point that I can go back to practicing one-arm handstands, muscle-ups, ring works, you know. That's fantastic, yeah. That sounds like it really sucks that if you if you didn't even have full full extension of your wrist. Um, that's yeah. something that, um, I mean, even in just sort of daily life, standing up from a chair and things must have been... Yeah, chairs, movements. opening doors are the ones that will get you because you just don't think. You're just walking and then... Boom, and then oh, like no. your wrist doesn't bend, your fingers will go back, and you know the unexpected things. You're just like, fuck, just holding your wrist, walking down the stairs, and <laughs> yeah, horrendous. I like, well, I was I was going to ask you something about injury a bit later on, but um, yeah, I do find like 
least with well seen some some data as well suggesting that people start developing really funky um sort of compensatory movement patterns when they have an injury and often once they're recovered doesn't really come back definitely Uh, it's 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 one of these things that we our bodies are mind our mind is a body to a certain degree and we inhabit the patterns we do so if our brain senses pain even at a very subconscious level or knows that we're if i do an action it's going to hurt same as like if we feed a dog with the food bowls electrified he's not going to go for the food bowl from the red bowl you go from different one so if you notice that negative stimulus then you will just begin to lean away or you'll do funky things like if we look at someone who has bad ankle injuries they'll lock their joints on one side to keep the weight going through the bones rather than having to balance it and potentially risk controlling that leg in a weird position right so if you get if you rebuild something people will still have this funky pattern going on as you put it so that's going to have some kind of cascade of of muscular effects i'm sure yeah on on the rest of their rest yeah. of the body up the stream i guess basically and it's, it's a lot of like unconscious tension what i kind of touched on in one of the other videos that we can hold a lot of tension in our body and that will that's basically our compensating pattern you know it hurts when i put all the weight on my foot because you know i sprained my ankle all those years ago and then we're just consciously keeping all our weight to one side would be a simple example of that. Right. And then we don't know that. And we think we're aligned, we think we're balanced, but if we stuck someone on pressure plate, we'll see they've got like 75% of their weight on their one leg and 25 on the other. Wow. And they're all the way through their life or until we sort of point this thing out. Amazing that that's something that, um, yeah, you wouldn't be aware of until you just stand on the thing and you're like, oh, that's yeah, yeah. quite a major shift. Um, that actually segues us quite nicely into, um, so I was going to ask you, uh, our audience tend to be lifters, uh, primarily trying to get stronger or leaner, um, and we have a lot of power lifters and some Olympic lifters as well, so um, one thing that, it's a problem that I've had, and uh, it's, I imagine it's a very common one with, with lifters, particularly in the sense that all of the main lifts that we're doing involve kind of being in this lumbar extension position anterior pelvic tilt so the squats deadlift cleans all of that where you're um you're really in a very posterior chain dominant um, position and uh what happened is i tore my quadratus lumborum which is um one of the uh spinal erectors and uh or one yeah part of the core anyway and uh that is that that's caused me chronic back pain for about seven years or so and after doing some reading I'm starting to realize that it's most likely there's not any kind of structural damage remaining in that in that area anymore but it's more about the threat perception and the yeah. the kind of fear of going through flexion I think that's partly been um, although I hate the term the biopsychosocial model to pain um, that uh, there probably is a psychological element in that particularly things like teenation as we mentioned tend to really demonize spinal flexion um, yeah. as if it's uh, as if it's the worst thing in the world whereas I think that's really come about through some kind of exaggeration of um, don't flex your spine maximally under load but then yeah. people kind of extrapolated that to take it as never flex your spine so um, do you have anything to say about uh, improving that or if, if you if we have anyone who does have like flexion intolerant back pain and how they can eventually learn to kind of 
start safely moving through that motion once again. First thing first, we have to... It's one thing, QL tear, just to address, actually, is quite common. I've come across that with a lot. Like, a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds actually have it. <clears throat> now, my guess to what the cause of this, and something you might want to investigate in your own training, is the QL isn't that active when you're loaded in a symmetric manner, but it does a lot of the lateral flexion of the spine from side to side and stabilizes that. So if we were to look at offset carries, so one-handed farmer's walks, farm kettlebell or dumbbell in a front rack position walks, even taking overhead walks with one arm, one arm loaded lunges, one arm loaded Bulgarian split squats. We can look at actually strengthening the QL because if something's going to go in the body, it's the weak link, obviously. So if that's not getting trained and not keeping up with the rest of your strength, that will be the first thing to go, particularly if you, you know, one leg is stronger than the other. We're going to come up uneven slightly on a max deadlift. It happens unless you're, you know, trained very, very strongly. So you will be in a bad position. So that's something just to think about in accessory work. Okay. It's also another thing I've actually, I train a few powerlifters here and there. And something to investigate for your powerlifting audience is your hip flexors. So many powerlifters' hip flexors are weak, which is contrary to the thing because no one really thinks we're sitting in a flex position, they're inhibited. A little test you guys might want to try is stand with your back against the wall, about an inch, two inches from the wall. So you're not touching it, but you just can't lean backwards. Now, I want you to lift your leg up into roughly the same position your squat stance is. So, break in parallel, knee above the hip crease. And you should be able to hold that for a minimum of 15 seconds without any gritting of the teeth, relaxed face, no shaking. <laughs> I can do see that. myself embarrassingly failing at this. You can't do that. Your hip flexors are weak. Now, that's going to also tug on the other side of the spine. It'll also affect your start position in a lot of lifts. That's one thing like that I've noticed such a massive change in. I think there's some pictures on my Facebook of one of the guys who done one of my flexibility workshops, and I pointed out that his position, his hip flexors were weak. So he done some work to strengthen them. Came sent me a photo in four weeks' time of his start deadlift start position. Had gone from having a curved lumbar spine to being perfectly flat in the lumbar spine, and then you know rounded over a bit in the thoracic, which is fine if you're doing a heavy deadlift. Right. That's fun. So, so he he changed his um, start position from not not even from addressing something sort of further down the chain. Yeah, from looking yeah. at the sofas, it's just basically getting that balance. Because we think what's happening, we're coming forward, but if we go go forward, if the sofas doesn't pull this way, it's not going to engage the spine properly. It's part of that stabilization. It's the only thing that attaches the legs to the torso. Essentially, it's the direct line from the legs to the spine. So if the sofas or the hip flexors are weak then your start position, your flexed hip position might be weak as well. So that was something that um, I heard Kit Lachlan talk about where he said that um, a lot of people can't can't actually access their psoas in a stretch because of their rectus femoris is the, the limiting factor. It's, it's so, so crap that um, that's the thing that they need to, to release first. Um, yeah, uh, what would you recommend for that? I'd agree with that. So personally, like I'm... Kit Lachlan is quite a mentor to me and he's been quite a good friend and give me a lot of advice I've done training with him and I'd agree that the stretch therapy hip flexor practice is one of the most potent release sequences for the hip flexors you can find them on his YouTube we also I think he has them on pay-per-view on Vimeo for a fiver which is worth investing but 
in terms of what's going is the psoas release we need to release Recfem is one of the hip flexors the psoas we need to clear all the tension from that now we can mimic the effect of that is the problem is most people in all in all their hip extension stretches so thinking couch stretch for most people would be familiar with that most people will be familiar with the wall quad stretch or just even the kneeling lunge no one is posteriorly tilting their pelvis maximally before engaging that stretch so you need to tilt for guys the best image you can think of and girls maybe if you can picture that if you're standing in front of a table you want to try and put your balls on the table <laughs> that kind of that amount of tuck and then once you have that tuck only going as far into the stretch as you can maintain it and that will actually open hip extension whereas if you flex the hip even a small amount you lose that control you just don't actually you'll get a bit of a stretch but you're not actually stretching anything that's crossing the hip or teaching it to extend a lot of times just teaching it to release and extend more than actually trying to make it longer right so balls on the table balls on the table that image like that kind of tuck of the pelvis as much as you can if you're tight there if you're inhibited it's not going to go too far you just need to get in there make it do it you can you can make your body do whatever you want if you focus hard enough and spend enough time practicing it but literally it's that whole tucking the tail motion and then doing your quad stretches your hip flexor stretches what make them potent right for long enough time as well a lot of people just don't hold their stretches long enough so how long would you uh, would you say to hold something for? Now, it depends. If it's so we can obviously apply all these fancy P and F techniques, contract, relax, breathe, release, pulsing, all this shit, that's fine. But even just getting in, if people just want to do the simplest thing, holding your stretches for ninety seconds to hundred and twenty seconds at a level that you can bear and kind of just breathing, try to focus on the breathing, relaxing your face. Relax, go further, relax, go further, you know, every 15, 20 seconds. Don't go too far into the pain zone because once you start tensing your face, back off a little. That will do a lot. Then we can start looking at all the fancier stuff. But just clearing out that tension that we're just holding, just unconsciously, just put a bit of tension in, just forces those muscles to basically just relax, go further. And that will do a lot. Sure. So, well, 90 to 120 seconds, certainly, uh, especially when you're in a stretch, I think it, it goes a lot slower than a lot of people think. And uh, yeah. we've certainly had, had people that, um, and, and myself included, being in a stretch for what feels like ages, and then you look at the clock and it's like 15 seconds. So, um, yeah, I guess it's uh, probably quite important. Do, I mean, do you time these stretches? Do you have a stopwatch or something, or do you just I'll sit and count them? Watch. So it's kind of one of the differences between me and it would be Kit Lachlan kind of just teaches people to inhabit their body and feel it out I'm more of a thing particularly with beginners just to give them a set time but with clear goals of just breathe relax breathe relax obviously when I'm working with people I might back them out or might let them go a bit further if they need it judging on how they're reacting you don't want to get into a point where you're like for a lot of people in a lot of stretch positions you're a lot quite weak so you want to take a lot of the weight you know if you can get there with 10 kilos of weight, of your body weight, and hold the other 80 kilos in, you know, a chair or some yoga blocks, whatever, that's fine. You can still increase on that. Whereas if you right. dump your body weight into it, it becomes unbearable and you can't maintain it. Well, 
just while we're on that note, um, if it's all right, if we can just back up a little bit and um, just kind of go over what what's your what's your definition of, of flexibility, and if you can clear up the kind of um, misconception any yeah misconceptions on flexibility versus mobility. Oh, we're getting into a <laughs> shitstorm now. Oh, really? Okay, my God, uh, haters I'll, coming back I'll to you. I give my my take on it, and for me, mobility and flexibility training are they're always linked. There's no separation. If we look at if we look at what we've done in dance classes, if we look at what we do in gymnastics, even though there's thing, your training flexibility, your mobility is also trained in your specific activity. But nowadays it's kind of like I'm doing mobility, I'm doing this. If we look at like the most flexible people go back to gymnastic dancers, yeah, they're doing their stretches, but they're also moving in much more directions than anyone else and much more often and that's kind of, they're using their flexibility and that's what's integrating it. Now we can begin to try and replicate that in terms of gaining motor control, practice like that. But if you use it, then it begins to integrate. Now, in terms of mobility, it's a bit of a catch-all term. Like, I haven't really got one definition of it, so I can't really, because I don't believe there is one definition, because yeah. it's not specific. You know, what's mobile for a powerlifter? You know, if we're talking about your audience, is completely different than what's mobile for a dancer. So, it's yeah, one agreed. Of I think also people often conflate mobility with soft tissue work, and I guess they just kind of use the word mobility to mean rolling around on on the mat and just doing that that's that weird stuff before you go and squat. So, yeah, um, yeah I think it's it's got a very kind of fuzzy definition. But um, what what you said there, I think, is really key, and it is something that. Um, is what triggered me to just go and uh, go on the Emmett binge, um, which is saying that um, in relation to gymnasts being stronger in a certain position through a range of motion, and how you were saying that it, you you kind of uh, you see so you you define flexibility in one of your videos as the um, strength in a in a position, and saying how it's not to do with um, the the actual length of the the contractile tissues or the fascia or anything yeah. that it's just about um, almost the yeah the threat perception in that position and, and learning to, to move through it consciously so for me that was uh, yeah huge shift yeah it's definitely like just teaching the body as you said threat perception of teaching the body to that it's okay to go into these ranges I was just talking about this today actually in regards to side splits so I've got I basically approach side splits from anyone else from basically strength in that stretch position. Same with front splits as well, but keep the side splits. So there's a couple of different routes we can take to achieve the side split. But what I've noticed with most of my clients, my students, they basically, they'll go out, they'll sort of hit a plateau at maybe 160 degrees of legs apart, maybe 150. They'll build up a lot of strength there. And then just one day, they'll just be like, they'll say to me, oh, I think I can do splits today, or the chain now my plateau for six weeks or might some people will just go straight flat linearly but then just one day there's something changes in their brain or maybe their body goes okay I can do the split now and they know it internally but then they can just go and go completely flat and it's like you know makes me look like a miracle worker <laughs> this but it's basically something has happened in either that link maybe the brain now knows oh hold on I have all this strength that I can hold it now I can just relax and go further into this thing. It's not a threat. Or, you know, the body is just goes, okay, finally realize, fuck it. We have all the tissue quality we need. 
just tell the brain it's okay to go there. Right. So well, I suppose that's that's kind of the um, the logical answer to my next question, which was going to be why is flexibility important for for the average Joe, and then for someone who who is training for strength or hypertrophy. Um, but yeah, I guess you've you kind of answered that already. Yeah, I can diverge on that one just in terms of you have to look at what you're doing for your activity. Now, I know movement is one of the big things at the moment and kind of one of my focuses. But at the end of the day, if you guys are, say, powerlifting, for example, now you want to spend as much of your training energy. We only have a certain amount of energy to spend on training a week, be that, you know, making our food, doing our mobility, whatever the fuck it is you need to do to be a successful powerlifter. But, so you need to choose what flexibility methods are going to benefit me the most. Now, we know if we work through full range of motion and we add some pauses in our reps. So if we were to look at our accessory exercises, say we had tight pecs. Now, if we were to do as an accessory exercise, dumbbell pressing, inclined dumbbell pressing, where you go into a stretch position and pause it in those reps, we'd achieve our stretching and our mobility goals a lot of the time. And we'd also work on our quality, spend a lot of our training effort building our pecs, say, which will in turn transfer to our speed off our chest, if I'm getting that right on benching. But it's yep. the same with, same with, you know, okay, or say our calves are tight or we can't squat ass the grass, maybe if we chose a front foot elevated split squat to start with, and then we just focus on not just going straight down, but also sending the knee forward and replicating that the squatting alignment on one leg will also just speed up the process of gaining our ass the grass squat in a way that's also we're training our legs we're spending some trying so our mobility training our strength training is quite linked now for someone who does acrobatics or gymnastics and stuff we're doing you know we're looking at more extreme positions but there's no reason we can't use the same techniques for powerlifting sure so basically graduate through the movements um, rather than kind of I guess expecting someone to be able to hit a full squat from um, you know if, if they have no or if, if they're not anatomically uh, built for it then um, to kind of pick a pick a movement that they can move through that range of motion maybe pause at the bottom get comfortable in that and build some strength in those extreme ends of the range of motion yeah. before progressing yeah, exactly, and we can do, and then we can also. It doesn't take too much out of our training time. It's one of those things when I deal with my clients and students. Obviously, a lot of them are looking for higher levels of flexibility, but we don't do that much. What they think is stretching, and always when they see the problems, they're like, "We're not doing that much stretching." It's like, just give it six weeks, and then we'll see where you are. Right, I see. So. Well, I, I guess it's probably a false economy to think like, "Oh, well, I have to go for specificity, and I've got to just keep hammering the squat, even though I can't hit my positions properly." Whereas, actually, if they did take a couple of steps back and work the positions yeah. and get stronger in them. I imagine it would then put more kilos on the uh, on the bar as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's a lot of like a lot of the benefits of you know we can say a high step up or quite a high step. We can replicate the benefits of an ass to grass squat for someone who isn't anatomically set for it at that presently moment. Be that flexibility wise, be it you know calves are weak. But then actually you'll see once they gain some strength there, some proficiency. The squat will improve from that. Right. Now, obviously, the, obviously, this is taking a very quick view of things. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons why people can't squat deep, and you know, it could just be core stability, or they can't breathe, or you know, they've never done it right. But if it is just general tightness, we can train. We can train flexibility and strength at the same time. 
there we go. Well, that that was that was another question I was going to ask you. So, um, well, so in in terms of lifters, um, what what would you say are? I mean, you you said that the the psoas uh, rectus femoris tend to be, and and the the upper pec tend to be um, problem areas. What would you recommend um, for kind of the average lifter who, as you said, only has a certain amount of time to dedicate to um, their flexibility work to to focus on? Ooh. Okay, well, that's a bit of a broad question because yeah, everyone's different. Question. So, one, I'd perform the pencil test for the upper body. So, if you guys don't know what that is, you grab two pencils and just let your arms hang by your side and see if they're massively turned in. If they're massively turned in, then we need to start stretching the pecs. We need to start trying to gain range. A lot of the time, it's not even that we need to get more flexible. We just need to teach the body that we can go into these ranges because we avoid them in our training. So we're thinking opening the chest. You can think, you know, just specifically the powerlifting. We could think, you know, dumbbell flies at a 45 degree angle. That will open this whole fascial chain from the center of the chest to the big finger. And that will, in turn, you know, take a gentle stretch it out. Don't pump the reps. I know it's a pump, a try go thing. Even if we go back to like old school bodybuilding, like the overhead, not the overhead, the over the back of a bench. Yeah, like they're fantastic. Mean? I use them a lot with my acrobats to open their bridges and stuff. And like, you okay. know, it's one of those forgotten things that I don't know, possibly got demonized for some reason back in God knows when, but that's a fantastic movement that also will just get, you know, smaller muscles involved as well but also just you know stretch everything get back these are just trying to think what else in terms of the lower body most people need to work on ankle mobility as well as stability so controlling it in a stretch position more so than calf tightness calf tightness can be a symptom of that which could in turn mean limited squat depth they need to gain some proficiency in the 1990 hip squat they are hip position so if you want to look up I think Paul Jack has a good video on that you can apply all the you know loaded stretching principles to that but just gaining some proficiency in that will open up the piriformis the hip flexors once again as we touched on the rec fem clearing that out and getting into that posterior tilt of the pelvis and getting away from the anterior tilt okay so basically um, there's a lot of stuff about extension from from the hips and from from the shoulders and and doing the, yeah. the 45 degree pec fly which uh yeah that's that's something i'm going to need to try I, um my wall you'd probably cringe at my wall test you know the uh, you're standing against the wall trying to slide your wrists up i can get to yeah. about there and that's it if you're listening to this on itunes that's like slightly above parallel that's horrendous um so what are some what are some targets that you think um the average lifter should kind of work towards in terms of um, progression with those things? I think in one of those things that it's, it's a difficult question thing and I don't really predict flexibility for training because it's so variable. We must be pro focused on the process more than anything else. Like say for example, I know say if you came to me and said okay I've got a 120 kilo squat I'd be fairly confident if you're an average person with no injury and say, okay, we're going to train for 12 weeks, that you'd get anywhere between a 10, 25 increase, 25 kilo increase in your squat. I'd be fairly confident making those predictions. Wow. With, 
you know. So, I'm, so it's, it's not something to overlook then. That's yeah, um, I mean, yeah, pretty major in terms of percentages. But in terms of flexibility training, it's so unpredictable. Like, I've had some people apply these loaded things. Like, I put girls who've been struggling with their splits for like two, three years into full side splits and full front splits in one session. Like, literally, just they've come to me. We've done some stuff. Whatever I've done is clearly been exactly what their body needed. Boom, it lets everything go. They're in splits. Wow. I so had I could pick a selection of girls who are the same age, height, weight, and experience as these other girls, and we've had to spend a year, year and a half working on their flexibility to gain their splits, even though they started the exact like their stats are the exact same. Right. So you think that's is that maybe testimony to the, the sort of psychological element of of flexibility then? Um, yeah. Or is it maybe that the, the girls who got it maybe had the capacity for it, but something was kind of holding them back, and you maybe taking yeah, them no, through? It's, it's that's one of the things. It's just uh, that's why I say it's hard to predict because, like, in terms of if people are carrying a lot of just say tension and not even thing, if you teach them to relax, teach them to breathe into their stretch, suddenly they'll just get a feeling of everything opening up and expanding, and that comes very quickly. And suddenly they have all this new range, and it lasts pretty much once they keep using it whereas if people are just you know chronically tight for say the fascia is bound down then we just need to work on remodeling the tissue which will come if you follow the process so for people listening my goal is just to follow a process be it I suggested something incredibly simple which is very simple for people to follow it's not the best process I wouldn't say it's the ultimate way to gain it but it's very simple to apply and that's what we look for, and you can consistently apply it. And then you can judge the effects for yourself. Now, people, in terms of flexibility training, we have to expect there's a bit of a plateau always while there's internal remodeling going on. So you'll gain some range, you'll gain some range, you'll gain some range, then it will stop. Now, that stops for four or five weeks. After about five weeks, you might want to question what you're doing. You know, But make sure your positions are nice. Maybe start to hold it a bit longer. You know, there's a couple of all the variables you can play with, but just, just expect that plateau. When that happens, just let it happen. Don't change anything because that's the temptation. We're like, oh fuck it, what I was doing wasn't working. Definitely. And then you'll change it to something else, and then you'll get a bit more gains because the neurological effect of a new stimulus. But then they'll plateau as well. But if you just focus and work through that plateau, and then suddenly things will open up. Right, so just focus on on the process. I I think yeah. that's going to be quite a hard mental hurdle to swallow, especially for lifters, um, in the sense that, um, you know, where, where you're expecting, you know, you, you know all of the inputs and the calories and everything, and and so the progress should be relatively linear unless there's something wrong. Whereas, as you're saying, if this is kind of a non-linear process, to just focus on on the, the positions and and how it feels, um, and I guess also with it, it the expectation of um, timelines when when you're starting a new pursuit. Um, you mentioned in one of your one of your videos as well that um, the the analogy of someone just turning up in a gym and expecting to squat two hundred kilos, um, whereas there's not really because there's no reference point, I guess. And um, you know the the way that I I've been trying to learn um, a pancake stretch, which for everyone listening is uh, where you're sat with your legs straight out at ninety degrees or so, and you're trying to get your body flat on the floor. And uh, I was just doing the standard sort of PE teacher recommendation of uh, two to three sets of 30 second balls out stretch and I wasn't getting any more flexible and it was just just hurting. 
and after sort of two weeks, I think, of following your um, ballistic approach, um, although ballistic implies that, you know, I'm absolutely ramming my head against the floor, it's just uh, sort of gentle bouncing, um, my my progress has improved about 10, 20 degrees, which, oh, uh, yeah, which is fantastic. Um, what are your thoughts on... Uh, because you see a lot of the one of my friends has uh, has asked me to to ask this for you um the 45 day wushu protocols and and these kind of secretive mobility programs um just he wants to know your opinion on these things that are enshrouded in mystery and uh is there anything to them or can we just crack on and dispel the mysticism uh, i know it's sort of kit Lockton has a very open economy view on the whole thing and he's just like uh, you know my view is the same as kids. So people do have their own specific methods and protocols. It's marketing at the end of the day. They need to have them. They may be effective, they may not. I don't know what is the exact 45 the gate protocol. It's a shrouded mystery. I don't have anything to do with it. I've never done any seminars, so I can't answer that specifically. I've seen a few of them posted around the net. I don't know if it's which one is the correct one. But I think in terms of I'm in favor of sharing. I'm in favor of there should be no gatekeepers to knowledge. I think it should just be out there in public discourse. And then people can make their own decisions. So some stuff people are kinda one it's one of these things a lot of times the emperor knows clothes, wears no clothes. Now I could release or I could start speaking about my secret side split routine that is top secret and only granted to think. Now people would want that. <laughs> Now, if you have actually seen what's involved in the side split, it's just me making you do something consistently. <laughs> then you're just going to go, oh, there's no real secret to that. Whereas if we have a little little bit of mystery, a little bit of exotic mystique, it's the same shit. We're like, think about it. If we go back in the day, people were pretending to be gurus from India or strongmen from India or mysterious performers from the East to build a bit of mystique. We have the same, the secret Wushu protocol. It's from the East... It's exotic. It's something we Therefore, might do. It must be great. Yeah, same with strength training. Think about all the Russian secret Russian squat program. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Kits, you know, they, I like some of them are effective, but a lot of them are just like made up by the right by the Joe Weider crew. So right. I think well, it's it's interesting to see that that's that's the same kind of principle in the flexibility and and movement world as well. Because um, I think yeah, as you said, with with strength programs and particularly with us, um, a lot of our content is about trying to dispel uh, the nutritional bollocks that comes about yeah. and and, it, and yeah it, it, it's not as sexy to sell uh, calorie deficit and progressive overload but yeah, uh, you know but it works yeah that, that's it so um, and yeah like all of the rest of uh, these diets are really just ways to kind of trick people into into following those main principles so uh, I'm guessing you're saying that um, these these sort of mystic programs are, are really just following the same fundamental principles but yeah, wrapped up in it, marketing it's kind of one, yeah it's one of those things like the head to toe program I put online was just kind of a bit of a I'm not going to say I'm not going to say away from the flag but it's just like just to show that it's not actually too difficult that other people know these things this doesn't need to be shrouded in mystery that we know the principles you know all the principles of stretching and flexibility that we're using at the moment have been known since at least the 70s, as far back as some of the literature on this goes, probably even the 60s for some of the stuff I use. It's not rev it's not revolutionary, it's not novel, 
maybe the names and the terminology we use for it. It's, I think, it's what I call, what I spoke about in my blog post, I don't know if you read the one released around New Year's. There's, because movement is new, there's a battle of terminology, not practice. Right. That where people are trying to vie for market space, and I'm doing it as well, you know, I'm straight up, I run a business based on this, I love doing it, so hopefully my business grows. But we're battling for terminology, you know, are we doing loaded progressive stretching, are we doing modern methods of mobility, which is my seminar, are we doing functional range conditioning, are we following stretching scientific, all of these, like if you look at what the actual practices are, and what we do in them, and what the end goals are, and how people reach them, I'm going to say, if I gave a program, and we put it next to all the other programs for these things, they'd look remarkably similar. Right. They would, and there'd be no, there's going to be variance for people, there's going to be variance for people's level, but if we look at the way people progress through them, it'll be the same. Now, it's the same as like, if we look at all the 5x5 five five programs for lifting out there, if we look at, you know, beginners, they're all very successful, they all follow the same principle of progressive overload, consistency, doing a bit more, getting all your other variables in check where people don't talk about, you know, eating right, people start doing that for the time, sleeping right. If we put them all together, it doesn't matter whether you're doing, you know, strong list five by five, what's it on starting strength, mad cow, you know. Bill Star, yeah, so I, I guess all of that is then attributed to the the magic of the program and the specific um the fact that you do squats on the Tuesday and not on the, the Wednesday afternoon and stuff, whereas actually it's just the combination of a series of lifestyle changes and yeah. I mean, in in terms of what you said there, I mean the the, the as someone outside of that, that world, the terminology um doesn't often mean a lot to me, but seeing the way that you approach it would make me, if anything, more likely to attend one of your seminars in that it's just sensible application of decent principles rather than um, having it behind this paywall of magical things that makes you think, well, there's no way to empirically verify whether these are, are yeah. correct or not. Yeah, that's uh, it's one of those things. It's like, when, say, just if I go to my seminars, it's I've deliberately kept them free of science as much as possible. Now, I can do the science with anyone who wants to do it, but I try to just keep it practice-based. I've tried to move myself into just practice-based I'm trying to like I spent so long researching, I spent so much reading, so many books, so many courses that I'm kinda of sick of it myself. So now I'm just interested in what works in a practice base that I can apply to a lot of people. So that's what I do in the seminar is like we teach these techniques, we learn them as you go along. So if we're learning how to do ballistic stretching, we're doing ballistic stretches for various body parts. We're talking about how you apply them, but we're also seeing it in action rather than just going, okay, we're going to do this, here's the technique. So then you begin to understand, you put a more practice-based component of it together. That makes sense. I, I guess especially in a um, in a field of you know, flexibility where the, the research is slightly more, um, it's slightly less up-to-date up than in, in strength and nutrition, uh, yeah. It's there has to be a point where you just say, okay, we're just going to take the the heuristic approach and and try what works and and move that way rather than uh, and even with uh, with something as simple I don't know with with carbohydrates for example and you've still got ongoing debates of people that can find any any data that is pro or, or anti something quite yeah. fundamental if you look for it and uh, at the end of the day you have to say well look just eat some carbs get on with it you'll be okay or don't do it and then 
see what works. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a lot of what it comes down to is just trying everything out in a way that's structured and then finding what works for you from that structure. You know, if you jump from one thing to another to another, you will never know whether it works for you. You'll never know if it will work for you, then stop working. You'll never know whether it doesn't really start and then suddenly it just exponentially works. You've probably seen this with your dying clients where you're like, okay, they tried whatever, it's just not working. You go, okay, we're just going to stick with this one approach. We're going to do that for six to ten weeks and then we're going to reassess whether it worked. And it's not very popular psychologically, but... uh... It's not not novel. That's the problem is people crave novelty. And they just, you know, if you probably released an ebook, jazzed it up on or the ultra fast, rapid fat loss, super <laughs> secret manual, people would be all over that shit. They probably wouldn't follow it or stick to it, but they yeah. want to know because it's new, it's sexy, and it's interesting. That is true. How long? I'd have like, to start you know? taking sedatives to get to get to sleep at night as well for doing that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, Emma, it's been amazing chatting to you, and there's a lot of really. Uh, applicable stuff for lifters there so thanks for your time um, how can we find out more about you and maybe go to one of your seminars so basically I have the website silverleapproject.io that's perfectly findable you find more information there it's still just in development but it's got my blog other than that you can find me on all my social media Emma Lewis on Facebook Instagram and I think that's all I have at the moment other than that there's not that much events planned for the next year coming there's a few coming up but they'll be announced on facebook as events if facilities are interested in hosting just get in touch we can work something out and uh other than that like yeah speak to people new or speak to people in the new year fantastic i'll stick all those links in the description below the awkward moment when at the end of an interview you realize you've been mispronouncing the uh, the interviewee's last name um <laughs> but yeah okay. I mean, there's a few pronunciations of that so don't worry. Oh, cool. Well, as you can imagine, my name gets butchered as well. So uh, we're in the same in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Emmett. Thanks so much. And uh, that's episode twenty-four. Check out the links in the description and speak to you guys soon.